Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. It's happening. Shakalaka. Right now. So... Uh, do we, so do we, are we honest about what has been going on for the last three weeks? <laughs> I don't know. Dare we come clean? All right, let's just come clean. All right. So, uh, we, everything for the last three weeks has been completely fraudulent. How's that? There it's out. <laughs> Some of the movies we talked about in the shows from the last three weeks don't even exist. You may we think, hired... you may think you've seen them. We hired two maids to come in and just and just record the show for us. Uh, it's been vacation. We've had a little vacation. You know, we do this, so we recorded the last. We have had some episodes we recorded back to back to to uh, get them out of the way, so that we could go have a little vacation. So we did that, and we're now back. We're on track. We're we're back in the saddle, so to speak. Again, and I'm back back where a friend is a friend. And in black, also, <laughs> and um, right where you belong. And I, thought that, I thought that was where love lifted us up. Where love does, in fact, lift <laughs> us up <laughs> as well. Um, well. You can tell we haven't talked in three weeks. <laughs> I know we haven't. We should have. Uh, we just sort of pressed record. Maybe we did that pr- uh, prematurely. Is, is what I'm, what I'm thinking. Um, but we have some uh, old. Do we have some old business? I think we do. Well, it's the next reel, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson, and uh, we we talk about movies on this show. You can find us at thenextreel.com. You can join the conversation at facebook.com slash thenextreel, uh, or uh, you can always uh, tweet us, and uh, you can find out all that good stuff. Tweet the next reel or at Pete Wright or at Soda Creek Film if you're so inclined. And finally... You can jump to this link right off of our uh, website, the top 100 gold list of our favorite movies of all time over on Flickchart. So that's another way to to keep up with what we're talking about. So there you there you have it. That's the uh, that's the those are the digits. That's the skinny. That's the skinny. Uh, What do we have in terms of do we have any any comments to respond to? Uh, over that we've missed over the last three weeks, we got you know we had a couple of people who were were uh, were very excited that we did uh, Midnight Run and and nobody has yet um, shared I, I think my assertion that that is in fact Robert De Niro's worst film. That's <laughs> because so I, I think you had you know between that and Taxi Driver, I'm starting to feel like maybe you just have something against Robert De Niro. And you know what? That I, all evidence would seem to lead that, but that's not true. When I think Robert De Niro, <laughs> I think I'm I'm very happy about his role in the universe. Those are just we've picked two movies that are. Really- <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I don't know. How did I'm we do that? For, I'm looking forward to watching another one, and you're going to go, you know, it's funny. I enjoy the movie, but man, that De Niro. That De Niro Who hired him? <laughs> I, I'm telling you, man, that's not that's not going to be how it shakes out. I'm, I, I, feel, I feel better about it going forward. I Godfather think we've got him out of the way. would have been great if it would only cast a real actor. <laughs> that's just mean. You take that back. Oh, uh, so that was that uh, and uh, let's see I, you know I believe we even well you talk for a minute go ahead I'm, so, uh, I'm looking for something I don't have anything I don't what? have anything How am I, you're supposed to vamp that's what we do we go back and forth and then I have to search for something and you vamp well I do I do think it's interesting and this really um, doesn't have anything to do with what we've been talking about but I do think it's interesting that that Ryan Reynolds uh, you know we, we did point out on Facebook that Ryan Reynolds and Mary Louise Parker both have two movies opening this coming weekend Ryan Reynolds of course in Turbo and RIPD and uh, and uh, I, I I think it's uh, kind of interesting that they ended up uh, that way and you know I think to me, it seems like it's a it's a summer of family friendly films. Seeing that Despicable Me two beat out the uh, you know the opening weekend of Pacific Rim, I have a feeling that Turbo is likely to take this weekend, beat out RMPD, beat out. You Red really 2. think so? Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure that Turbo has what it takes. There, I don't know. It's a pretty fast snail. And and I think you just summed it up. I RIPD I think is going to be in the same camp as Pacific Rim. It's going to be a geeky sort of film where certain geeky fans are going to go see it, but it's not something that appeals to the mainstream. That's my sense. Red 2 maybe I that might take it. Honestly, I, I don't quite know what the box office was for the first Red. Um maybe it will pull up there uh, something comparable to what the first one did. I don't know if the, like I said I don't know if the first one. I get in trouble every time I talk about Red, so I don't feel like I need to to comment. <laughs> but, um, but I would like to say RIPD, I think you're giving a little bit too much credit. It just I and I I don't I haven't seen it. It I have not read the I, I believe it was a, a comic. Uh, yeah, graphic novel. It is graphic. Yeah. Graphic. And uh, both uh, look extremely dumb. Judging, uh, well, it's, as it's, I shouldn't, a book by its proverbial cover, it looks really dumb. True grit crossed with Men in Black yeah. crossed with yeah. Ghostbusters. There are or only something. so many mashups one can take. This it, is it, the meta mashup. Yeah, and maybe you're, maybe I am being a little too nice to it, but I still think Turbo is likely to to beat that one out for sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think Despicable Me is uh, probably still has uh, legs to it. Have you seen Pacific well, Rim? I did. Yeah. What, what's your uh, What's your verdict? Eh, I thought it was enjoyable. I thought uh, whatever the lead character's name is was Charlie Hunnam. Mm-hmm. I thought was bland and lifeless and practically killed the film for me. He was so bad. Uh, and I, I shouldn't say I shouldn't say bad. It's just it's dull, and you know, just like almost like I was watching a blank screen every time it came on. It was it was rough to to sit through. Um, Did you feel a little bit like you were watching Midnight Run, but only the De Niro scenes? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh man, no. Maybe that's what please. you felt like. <laughs> no. Um, okay, so I, uh, I I good. I have not seen it yet. We only just got back from our vacation in in the woods. But you know what we saw? We we did our Chautauqua trip, and um, 
you know, every year we do the, uh, we, we usually do the uh, a show about one of the classic films in the Chautauqua classic film series. Uh, film critic David Zinman uh, is a regular Chautauquan, and he does this, this series throughout the summer uh, where he, he uh, brings in these super classic films from the, you know, from the, in this case, gosh, one was... Uh, saboteur 60 or uh, 42 43 um and it was hitchcock's uh, first american-made film and uh and so in this case he brought uh, saboteur in and uh, you know we watch it in the the chautauqua cinema is this beautiful classic you know balcony uh balconied theater and i always get the last seat at the very top of the balcony it's the best seat in the house everybody else is it's just crazy for not going right back up to the top Get my big popcorn, and I just I really love it. And you know what? That movie, uh, I it was just really chaotic, and I think uh, I think that had a, the story was really fun, and I, it's a good thriller, and the cast was great, and the editing just broke it. So mm. we didn't do a show on. I didn't I didn't push for a show on that. But I do want to cover one other thing, which we have talked about. I said I was going to do, which was this uh, World War Z. So the last film board we did was World War Z, and at the time I had not read the book. Oh yeah, and I I've read the book, and, and wow, uh, it's two very different beasts. Exactly, exactly. And at first, you know, you're reading the first major segment. I think it's broken up into like six kind of segments, chapters. I guess six, seven chapters, something like that. Uh, and the at first, I'm reading it, and I'm sort of in mourning because there is no protagonist character to follow. You yeah. know, I mean, there's no central kind of character that you can follow through the whole thing. It's just these these stories through of, uh, you know, this re- re- kind of neutral reportage of the event of the, the World War Z of the apocalypse. And and uh, but man, I, I so I got through that part and then I got into that place where you're just trying to figure out how did they possibly think that they were going to make this into a movie? Uh, <laughs> and then once uh, once I got through that. You just sort of let go, and man, I fell in love with it. Um, yeah. By the end, I was really in love with what what Max Brooks had done with that film or with that book, uh, and and I'm actually more excited to see what they do with the next, hopefully, the next two World War Z films. I would I'm I'm now really intrigued by how they tell the story of of kind of the reclaiming and the rebuilding of of civilization as a result. So. Uh, I really liked it. I and yeah, I, I think it should be that. really, really, really neat to see. Did you catch Redemption? We talked I, about this one. This is Statham newest one. You'd caught it. Hummingbird. I absolutely caught it. Hummingbird. That's oh, the British the title. Thing. Yeah, British. So they it's do that differently. Hummingbird in England, and I think it's called Killer Joe in France. Which is weird because there we there was already a Killer Joe. Wasn't I there? know. That's weird. Killer. Killer job, yeah. What so? What did you think of it? I had poo-pooed I, it originally. You were the one who said it was supposed to be great. I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. There's something about um, what's his name's uh, Stephen uh, Knight, Stephen Knight, and his writing that I really am drawn to. And I think it's because he really looks at issues of immigration and kind of the lower class versus the upper class 
And uh, he did that in Dirty Pretty Things. He did that in Eastern Promises. And he did does it in Redemption. And I really enjoy it. I had a hard time buying Statham in his long-haired wig. Luckily, he wasn't in that for very long. <laughs> yeah, that was nice. He, he quickly went back to the Statham. He kept looking. I kept thinking of watching Rocky Horror. Like, he looked like... Uh, right, exactly. Yeah, so good. Uh, it, yes, but you know what I you know what I liked about it is that it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, as uh, like there was some good kind of thug action, but it wasn't an action film per se. I thought I was I was really intrigued by all the performances in there, and I thought the uh, the nun was particularly great. She was so fun to watch. Um, but and not just fun to watch, but really well cast. Yeah. Oh, beautifully and, cast. And. In a, in a role that you know you would typically think that they would cast some starlet who's all of a sudden playing this nun, and you're like, okay, I don't really buy you as a nun, but okay, I'll suspend disbelief for the purposes of the film. But he really, you know, Stephen Knight as the director really cast somebody in the role who fit that role really well. I, I believe she was a, a or is a Polish actress and worked just so well in the film. I really enjoyed her and I enjoyed the relationship that she had with Statham in that film. It sounds like you'd like it enough that maybe we should do a show on it. I think we just might. We just might. I felt like living in the future. I don't do this a whole lot. With the uh, you know download the uh, iTunes for the new release films, the simultaneous release. Yeah. Uh, but I did it for this one, and I really liked the experience. I, I'm yeah. going to be doing it more. Nice. I like this. I really like where it's going. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had a couple of articles we, we were going to talk about this uh, this week, but uh, that you we talked about the the long format Netflix thing that was floating around and. You know, Netflix's uh, secret plan to destroy cinema. They are. That is and, their secret uh, plan. Yes. And uh, there was the the other one. What was the other one? Oh, you know, Sarmento sent me uh, the one. So before we talk about Netflix, Sarmento sent a link you'll find on the uh, in the show notes uh, to what the, uh, the Iron Throne, uh, how big the Iron Throne really is. If you're a Game of Thrones fans, you, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And mm. it's really cool. It's a... Uh, 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 George R. R. Martin talking about um, giving sort of an artist rendering of what he uh, thought the Iron Throne should look like, and it's uh, needless to say, it's a little bit different. It's it, yeah, the scope is vast. It's it's really got <laughs> a lot of lot of swords, lot of lot of dead lot. bodies. Yes. associated with that. It's I I'm have you are you moving through it at all? I I haven't watched a single just, episode, but I really enjoy the throne. Oh. <laughs> It's on my list. It's on my list. I know. You One know what I you thing. know what I started watching was uh, Under the Dome. Yeah, me too. What do you think? And I I was very excited to see that the first episode uh, was helmed by uh our uh, girl with the dragon tattoo friend. I know, right? The Swedish yeah. version of Yeah, Niels Ardenolf. Niels Ardenolf. Yeah. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was okay. You know, it's, it's, I you know, I I'm a big fan of the book. I really enjoyed what they're doing with the show. I enjoyed the 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 slight shift that they're taking. It's almost like taking the characters, taking the story, but acknowledging, hey, we're going to turn this into a long-form show, and so we're going to tweak a lot and change a lot, and I really like what they're doing with it. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I like it, too. It, feels, it still feels a little bit like a guilty pleasure for me. Uh, yeah, yeah uh, it, it is, but it's so. Stephen King. I mean, yeah. it's all guilty pleasure. Yeah, all right. Okay. <laughs> I'm off the hook. Yes. Um, uh, so let's, we're going to talk trailers. Let's, let's do some trailers. We've been, we've been gabbing enough. Yes. Enough out of this, out of you. 
What do you I want? To, am, let's do your trailer. I do you want to do mine first or yours? Yours is well. Yours is heavier. Mine's a little more uplifting. Let's okay. start with yours. Okay, we'll do. Let's we'll, go heavy. We'll do mine. Okay, <laughs> let's go heavy. I am very excited about this. The trailer's been out for you know a couple months, I think. Uh, the movie comes out in at the end of next month. Is that right? Um, the movie is Closed Circuit, uh, starring uh, the uh, c- the comedic stylings of Eric Bana, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Rebecca Hall, who. She's not British, right? She is British. She's really British? She really is she British. She does a really convincing American accent. She does. I, she was amazing in the town. I never would have thought that she was British. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm surprised that didn't... that didn't. I mean, I just never even thought to ask. Yeah. What, because she was... She, she, was she did her British well in uh, The Prestige. We got to see that. That's right. That's right. Gosh. Man. Mystery. Wrapped inside a Twinkie. <laughs> uh, the uh, and then uh, Julia Stiles, not uh, speaking in a British accent. Um, this is a. It looks like a great sort of British. Um, uh, it, it's a legal thriller, um, directed by uh, John Crowley, who hasn't done uh, a whole lot. Uh, he he did. Uh, let's see. Uh, is anybody there in two thousand eight? Boy A and Intermission. I haven't seen uh, any of them. But uh, I, Michael I think Caine they're anybody there. Yeah, I think they're kind of just kind of low budget uh, indie British films. Is yeah. kind of I think his his uh, world. So this is a, uh, a a significantly sort of larger thriller film, big explosion, and uh, it follows the uh, legal team um, uh, trying to un- unravel it. It looks like a great thriller, and I'm very excited about it. So uh, Julia Stiles, Eric Banner, and Rebecca Hall. Yes, and Jim Broadbent. And it's written by Stephen Knight, who we were oh, just yes, talking about. Oh, yes, we were about. just talking about Stephen Knight. I should have said that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely um, fantastic. Yeah, it looks uh, looks really good. And um, uh, so uh, keep an eye out for that. And it opens August 28th. The thing that worries me about Stephen Knight with all of this great stuff that he's working on... Is Clash of the Titans 3. Clash of the Titans 3. <laughs> What? Where does that come from? Right. Hey, this guy writes these these great, you know, gritty stories about class and and uh, immigrant warfare. Let's get him right. <laughs> Clash of the Titans. Oh my! You know what we need in Clash of the Titans? More immigrant warfare. <laughs> I thought that too. Oh my! That's yeah. funny. All Indeed. right. All right. So what do you uh, what do you got? My trailer I have been very excited about for quite a while. Uh, it's called Saving Mr. Banks. Of course, you know Tom Hanks is is my fave. I'm a big Tom Hanks fan. Mm-hmm. Very much excited to see him playing another one of my faves, Walt Disney. I think that is just, you know, makes me giddy with excitement, that the fact that he's playing Walt Disney. I think it's a, a fascinating uh, uh character to get to play and even if i am never convinced (laughs) that tom hanks is walt disney and i'm always seeing tom hanks playing walt disney i think that he's going to give a great performance and i think emma thompson is going to be wonderful in this as pl travers the author of the novel mary poppins and that's what the story is about it takes place when walt disney is trying to convince pl travers to let him have the rights to mary poppins so that he can make the movie and uh, she's none too thrilled of the idea of it being disney 
<laughs> so it looks like a great trailer, and I am just very excited to see what they do with this. It really does look like a great trailer. I could, I was, I God, I was so ready to to lampoon you uh, over <laughs> this film, and I, you know, I, when he said. <laughs> There's a line that I'm going to butcher, but he's he's talking to her on the phone. He says, "Who wouldn't want to go to Walt Disney World with Walt Disney?" Yeah, right. <laughs> I was like, "I want to go with Walt Disney." Oh no! <laughs> uh, it it looks it, it looks really uh, very sweet, and and uh, you know, hopefully the the trailer I think tries to uncover what the the real sort of sense, <laughs> the sense and sensibility of uh, Mary Poppins. <laughs> And yes. um, I think that uh, you know, I, I really like the the angle they take the the film. I think it looks like they have they're we're in in for a great relationship. It may be a little bit meta. I think it would have been really bold if this film were from you know like Fox or something. But uh, Walt Disney, well, yeah. Disney I, I don't releasing a movie about Walt Disney. You know, that's I think they would have been, been hard. I think anyone else would have been hard pressed to get the rights. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> It's, uh, that's what I, I mean. Think, Bold, man. Bold. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I love seeing Jason Schwartzman and B.J. Novak playing uh, the Sherman Brothers. When I they think are, just, <laughs> when he slides the super fragicali super, sheet yeah, music <laughs> behind there, that was just great. Yeah, <laughs> well, unmake it up. Yeah, unmake it up. Uh, this was a uh, this was a script, I believe, that um, was on the blacklist. You know, there's this notorious. Yeah blacklist every year that is released at the end of the year of all of the hot scripts that are out there that nobody has um, purchased the rights to. And I believe that this script was one of those scripts um, a couple years ago. And so obviously Disney, with, with everyone involved in this film, it makes sense that Disney would snatch it up so that they could make it. And so I'm very excited to, uh, yeah, very excited to see it. it comes out. It's a, a ways away. It doesn't come out till Christmas, but uh, very much looking forward to it. Oh, it's going to be a perfect timing. Yeah, absolutely. It really looks good. Um, and so in that, the spirit of Disney family films, <laughs> tonight we continue our, our uh, conversation, uh, our series of Couples on the Run with... Uh, with Tony Scott and Quentin Tarantino's classic American romantic film and Brad Pitt vehicle, <laughs> True Romance. There you go. <laughs> what wow. a lead in. Right? What a lead in. Yeah. I tell you. How much do you love yeah. this movie? I, I really love it. This was one of those movies that, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed when it came out. I saw it, um, it was one of the real kind of the small theaters that had, I don't know if it had played a while or if it was just one of those you know, limited releases around where I was or whatever, but you know, I saw it, it was still a packed house, the audience loved it and everything, and then I kind of forgot about it for a while, and then I, 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 I picked it up when it came out, and I, I watched it some more, and I loved it, and it's one of those movies that kind of has drifted through my consciousness for a while, and then I hadn't seen it in probably... Wow, it's probably been at least 10 years. And it was one of those I was getting a little nervous about. I, I have to say, I was like, gosh, you know, is this one that I really enjoyed? And now I'm going to all of a sudden turn into Mr. Grumpy Pants about. <laughs> but lo and behold, I still really enjoyed it. And I had a great time. You did not have to put on your grumpy pants 
<laughs> no Andy didn't. shows up in his happy pants. <laughs> That's right. The grumpy pants are <laughs> hanging in the closet still. <laughs> I am. I am totally wearing my happy pants on this film. I. I'm like you. I haven't seen. I've had it in the collection for you know a long, long time, sure. and I. It's probably been as long since I've seen it, and I don't. I think the last time I watched it, I did not appreciate it as much as I appreciate it now. Um, and certainly did not appreciate it as much when I saw it in the theater, as apparently many uh, agreed and, you know, did not see it in the theater. Um, But I, man, is this movie stacked with talent. And, uh, you know, I'm watching this thing thinking, this is, it, it's, perfectly paced it's perfectly uh, you know there's no one in here who pulls a de niro there is just all of the performances are just really strong to the tone and feel of the film and uh and and it has it is built this this overall sort of storyline of clarence and alabama is built around these perfect moments of cameo performances from an unreal cast uh, yeah, no kidding. In this film, I mean, it's just it. It is unreal. I had I, I had no memory of of the sort of family tree, uh, sort of the collision of family trees that exists in this movie. Well, and what's interesting is watching it again now, as opposed to when it did come out or right. early, is seeing people who uh, who you recognize now who back then you may not recognize very much, but now you're like, oh, and then he was in that movie, and that movie, and that movie. Like, all these faces that kind of kept popping up, aside from the big ones. Right, right. And, and so. I mean, this is this is that film. I mean, I, you know, I grew up with Balky. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a totally different Balky. Oh. Uh, but, you know, okay, so the film is uh, about the... Uh, uh, Christian Slater is Clarence Worley and Patricia Arquette is Alabama Whitman. Uh, yeah, Christian Slater is, um, you know, kind of uh, down and out looking for love uh, with the fantastic opening scene about his uh, revealing his uh, innermost secret uh, feelings for Elvis. <laughs> uh, Elvis, his, uh, quote, mentor, played by uh, Val Kilmer, yep. whom we never see. Well, we see, but we never see his face. Right, right. Yeah, he's yeah. the disembodied voice of uh, Val Kilmer as Elvis, uh, and uh, so he's he runs a comic book, or he's a clerk at a comic book store, and uh, he's doing his best to to find love. He ends up uh, meeting his boss, ends up meet, uh, hiring Alabama, uh, to, uh, who is a call girl for what is it, six days. Four days. Uh, four days. She's been a call girl for four days, and she comes to meet uh, Clarence as a gift, and then they fall in love, and so begins the roller coaster. Of true romance. Of true romance. And that's one of the things I think I like the most about this movie, is that from there, you know, they they uh, come to quick and ironically believable terms with their relationship. Usually, you know, when these sorts of of crazy, you know, I just met you, now I love you, uh, romances happen on screen. They're, they are, are kind of on the razor's edge of believability. And this one I, I really get sucked into because I think they, it, it, they own it in the universe of the film. And I think they, they really have set the, the tone of kind of 
goofiness that that makes it really appropriate. And I think Patricia Arquette really nails the the um, uh, winsome. Uh, ness of of her relationship with with Clarence and uh, so um, well and I think part of that comes from sorry to interrupt no, but no. I think part of that part of that comes from this sense that this film is kind of a fairy tale right just just from the opening and and this this very you know frolicking tune that that kind of introduces the film this music that um, you know, I mean, it's great music. I always have uh, thought it was Hans Zimmer's original piece, but it's it's actually um, <laughs> it's Hans Zimmer's theme based on uh, Gassenhauer uh, from Karl Orff's schoolwork piece, which is the same piece that's used in Terrence Malick's Badlands. Um, and it's I, I find it interesting as a side note that. It doesn't actually credit Carl Orff's work anywhere in it. It just says Hans, Hans Zimmer d- does the music. So to me, it doesn't seem like he's basing it on the theme as so much as stealing it, which Hans Zimmer is known to do. But regardless, all of that aside, the music has this this fairy tale feel to it and this kind of just frolicking uh, sense. And uh, I, I feel like the way that the relationship goes and how fast they fall in love and just the the whole tone of the film all the way through gives it this fairy tale vibe that I really enjoy, and I do find it very believable with that when they fall in love that fast. I absolutely agree. I um, uh, they they uh, gosh, from from there on out, I mean, you you really feel like this these two are a, a unit all the way through the very last scene, uh, which will. We'll talk about in a bit, um, and then you know again, like a fairy tale, they come in and out of the sort of the world of these other um, of the, the criminal element. You know, first they meet, um, uh, well, they they end up meeting uh, uh, Drexel Spivey, played by Gary Oldman, mm-hmm. uh, who is remarkably powerful in this one of his uh, one of his Keystone Thug performances uh he's in the film for very small yeah yeah very uh short time and and it's the way he's presented you know he's presented in in sort of a um, kind of he's going to be our main antagonist in the film and and he's really not he is the pimp uh that uh patricia that alabama had been uh, working for and clarence goes to tell him what for and says you don't need to to hang out with her anymore and then they they duke it out and that's the first real sequence of of uh extreme violence that we get in the film um as uh as clarence uh sort of tries to to uh enter a world that he's ill-equipped to enter i think yeah but it's one that you know he's (laughs) in a weird way pushed into by this this uh, this appearance of Elvis that comes into his life. So it's his sub. It's the subconscious side of himself that almost like wants to be this tough guy that he talks about when he's you know such a fan of of the Sonny Chiba uh, you know kung fu movies, the Street Fighter trilogy, right. and you know he's he's so into that world and the, and just the comics and just all of that sort of stuff where it's like he's in tune with with that violence he's just never been a part of it and you can see from it i mean he has a gun it's not like he 
you know, hasn't kind of tapped into that side of himself, but it's clear he's never really gone there. And when he does go there and he kills uh, Drexel, it's, it is very, and, and takes a good beating himself. It's very much in a way where, um, like Elvis says, it's like the killing isn't that hard for him. It's, uh, um, no, no, sorry. Elvis says the killing is the hard part. Um, it's the getting away with it. That's easy. And, uh, but I, I did get a sense that the killing wasn't that hard for him. You know, it's mm-hmm. like he does it. I mean, yes, he has to, you know, it's a bloody battle in the process of it, but psychologically it's not that difficult for him. He does it. He deals with it. He moves on. And yes, he's pretty amped up when he gets back to the apartment, but it's not a psychological, you know, place that he's getting tortured with. In fact, he goes through the rest of the film perfectly uh, willing, seemingly, to to kill anyone else he needs to, if it comes to that, in order to to get what he needs to do, or like the money for all this cocaine, so that he and Alabama can go and have their happy life. So it's it's an interesting character, the way that he's he's written and the way he's played. He's innocent, but at the same time, that level is there. Well, yeah, you know, in this is sort of where it takes on some, you know, sort of noir themes, right? I mean, it's he is, he ends up being, and he's already a, a con man, and he's he ends up becoming a killer, and yet we because of this sort of fairy tale uh, kind of romance that we're following here, um, he is the the one that is just. Right. And, and mm-hmm. he is the one that is, you know, I think he goes back amped up to to meet with uh, Alabama again because he feels like it was a just killing. He did a really good deed in the very worst way. Uh, yeah. But he he is still in the right and he feels very strongly about that. And and um, uh, but but this really sets off the momentum for the rest of the film um uh, and and gives us the 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 sense of of pace that we're going to be seeing more of these kind of uh, bursts of action and and violence uh, as he takes the um, the wrong suitcase and ends up uh, it, it, the the whole uh, sort of plot of the film centers around a mistaken uh, snag of a suitcase and he ends up getting a whole lot of cocaine instead of her clothes because apparently right. they weigh the same <laughs> the way the same and use the same suitcase. <laughs> use the and, exact same yeah. suitcase. <laughs> well, that's Which is okay. Got... You totally buy that. That's totally okay. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, you know, he gives that girl the suitcase, go pack it up. And then he literally like stands up to walk out of the room and grabs the suitcase. It's like, wow, right. like, she packed that suitcase <laughs> so, so fast. fast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, so from there, you know, we end up with these scenes, and it's a you know, you should go uh, see the movie. Uh, the things that um, the things that stand out for me, these performances from uh, he, he, the, we we end up meeting um, uh, Christopher Walken and uh, Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper plays Clarence's dad. Christopher Walken plays the Sicilian thug. Yeah, it's. A notorious, a notorious scene that's now just called the Sicilian scene. Um, it really is great writing, and um, although I do remember, I, I showed it to a uh, girlfriend of mine at the time who was of Italian descent, and she wasn't very into the idea of it. She was a little, she's like, she just wasn't very excited about that conversation, but. 
I think it's very well written. I think it's smart. Uh, the way that Dennis Hopper's character goes about putting the situation in his favor. He knows where this whole thing is ending. And he changes it up by basically putting everything in his favor. So he basically skips all the beatings, skips having to give any information about his son, and just goes right to the end where he gets killed. Right. Brilliant. It, it, it is brilliant. It is that um, it, it's a fantastic volley between these two guys. And, and watching, uh, you know, it's that feeling that you know you should have gotten The first time uh, Michael Caine and uh, what's his name were on screen together. Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but in this case, it's it's just fantastic because the way this whole sequence is architected, these two guys sitting in chairs across from one another, these just powerhouses of crazy, uh, and uh, seeing who can who can you know out lob one another for this this fantastic. You know the the as I understand it. This sequence is essentially a transcription of a conversation that Tarantino had overheard from a, or had had heard from a a, um, a fellow he was living with. Uh, it was it was a before. yeah it was a family friend mm-hmm. when he was a kid and and uh, uh, this guy had had told him this story basically, and uh, it wasn't really quite like that. Tarantino he came up with the actual script. He was just. Uh, you know, talking to a friend, and and right. they ended up kind of going off on the whole thing. But yeah, it's because he had he had he was like he was sharing that story with someone else later, and said, "Hey, that's great. I should put that somewhere." Exactly. Uh, and boy, this, this just ended up perfect. Uh, that you know, another short sequence of Dennis Hopper. He ends up being uh, offed in this sequence, and to Walken's fantastic. Uh, I haven't killed anybody since 1984. <laughs> it's just terrific. And, you know, this is a, it very much is a Tarantino uh, script, but we haven't really talked about Tony Scott yet, the director, who yeah. we have, we've talked about on the show a number of times in the past. And, um, I, you know, I, I find him to be a fascinating director. I, he has a lot of very interesting ways that he tells his stories. And I, I think this in many ways is kind of a, a perfect story for him to tell. It really fits kind of everything about all of the the stuff that he puts into his films, and I think it works really well as a Tony Scott film in his in his body of work. But I think this scene um, also really speaks to Tony Scott and and directing. I think he's very smart. He um, early on, he uh, I, I think it was um, when they were setting up. You know, they were going to shoot. Um, Watkins shot first, and then they were going to spin around and shoot uh, uh, Dennis Hopper doing his side of the conversation. And Walken came up to Tony and said, "You know what? I, I'd really appreciate it if you could, you know, flip things around and shoot Dennis first, and then me." And Scott was like, "Yeah, I, I think we can do that." So they they did that. He arranged the schedule, um, and he really paid attention to uh, Christopher. Uh, walking to see what it was that he was doing and why he wanted it that way and 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 so they shot uh, Dennis Hopper's side first and everything and he was studying walking and he really saw him piecing his performance together and he saw him finding the character and finding the rhythm and finding the beats and as a director and so when they they did spin the camera around and shot it he was spot-on perfect and and Scott was smart enough to recognize that Walken needed that, 
And he was smart enough to pay attention to that, to, to see that he was doing that and know to what he needed to bring out in the performance. So it does feel very Tarantino, the dialogue. You've got two amazing actors doing it, but you've got to give amazing credit also to the director for knowing how to work all three of those other elements, uh, Hopper, Tarantino, and Walken, so that when it all came together, it was perfect. I, you know, I, I agree with you on, on all points. I think, um, uh, you know, I think this is a, a really solid Tony Scott directed film. It, it's, it's one that I get, uh, you know, I, I have trouble sort of because I don't, I mean, you know me, I like happy endings, right? I really mm-hmm. do. Yeah. And in, in that respect, True Romance is sort of the perfect film for me because it gives me someone to root for. It gives me, um, uh, you know, the right kind of gratuitous violence that I that my inner twelve year old loves. Uh, it gives me uh, the the romance that my inner uh, chick flick fan uh, loves, and it gives me a happy ending where both the, the you know the characters live. Uh, our main characters, uh, Clarence and Alabama, they live there on a beach, and now they have a kid. Mm-hmm. As I understand it. And as I, I, I think predictably, that's not how Tarantino intended the film to go. Right. And both uh, Clarence and Alabama in the original script ended up dead. Well, actually, Clarence ends up dead. Oh, but she Alabama up, lives. She ends up alone. All right. So he doesn't wake up. He gets shot in the head and doesn't right. wake up. Correct. And... Uh, the other piece of note in that sort of conversation is that uh, I, the way I understand it was the script originally was written in more of a nonlinear fashion, right? And, right, and right. So here we have Tony Scott coming and doing with the script, kind of he, he Tony Scott's it and makes it a great linear thriller with a nice happy ending. And I also really like Quentin Tarantino films. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> and so right. I'm torn. Did he do a disservice to what was otherwise uh, could have been a great, uh, uh, you know, script as written? Um, you know, I I am really torn at the end of this film. Insofar as I like the uh, I like the way it ends, uh, it, it satisfies my inner child. I also wanted him to stay dead. <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing. For the, the way that the film was made, and you know, like I said, it does have this fairy tale sort of quality. It makes sense that they both end up living right. at the end. No, it does. And and so so in the context of and you know, Tarantino is on record saying this. He's a huge fan of the film. He loves what Tony Scott did with it. He he fought Tony Scott with the ending and said, No, you have to I, I plead with you, you have to let Clarence die. And uh, I, you can't succumb to the Hollywood pressures to just give it this, you know, this happy ending that you don't need. And Tony said, look, it's n- there's no pressure on me at all. Nobody is forcing me to change the ending. But here's the thing. Over the course of the story, I have fallen in love with these two characters. I love who they are. I want them to live. It's as simple as that. I, I feel that they are such a wonderful pair that they need to be able to ride off into the sunset at the end. And Tarantino, you know, he, he totally understood where Tony was coming from. And he said, that makes perfect sense to me. I say, go for it. And that's the, the end of the film as it is. And I think it works really well with this film. Now, this was Tarantino's very first script that he ever wrote. 
Um, he he tried, I think, for like five years to get this script made, and he couldn't, and uh, couldn't get the funding. Couldn't get people thought the script was uh, well written, but they also thought he was just like, who is this kid who's breaking all these rules? And you know, he you know he's not doing it right. Basically, is kind of what people thought. Right. So he. Um, he went and he was getting frustrated and he wrote Natural Born Killers. Same thing. He couldn't get anyone to, to do it. And then he was just frustrated to no end. He said, I'm just going to write something that I can make that's cheap. He wrote Reservoir Dogs and he, um, through a contact of his, ended up talking to Tony Scott. And he said, yeah, I've got this script, Reservoir Dogs. Tony read it, loved it. He said, I want to make this script. He said, well, I'm hoping to make that myself. But I've got these other scripts. And so he gave him the other two, and Tony read both, and he's just like, true romance, this is the one I want to make. Now, I don't know when all the changes came in the script as far as the nonlinear to linear, um, but other than that, uh, Quentin basically says the script is is wholly intact other than the change to a linear uh, style. And I don't know. I, I don't think I miss what Tarantino would have done with this film. I mean, he says all three of those films were written to be his first film. Reservoir Dogs is the one that ended up being his first film. And people have asked him, well, are you, do you wish that you had saved True Romance to do yourself? He's like, no, you know what? By the time I was done with Reservoir Dogs, I, I was kind of done with that script. I wanted to move on to something else. It was written to be my first film, not my second film and you know yeah. he defines kind of these differences in his scripts and and uh, so i i don't know i think that by the time he made the film he wasn't in a place to make true romance and uh, i don't know i think everything fell the way it needed to i love this movie for what it is i guess yeah, that's yeah. what i'm trying to say <laughs> no i you know and i yeah you nailed it um <laughs> you know i i agree like i said i agree with you and i'm I, and that's why i'm i'm torn um, you know because who wants to disagree with tarantino um, but I still, you know, and, and this is me kind of 20 years later, you know, looking at the film and saying, gosh, now I wish it were nonlinear. And I, 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 you know, very different moviegoer than I was then. Um, anyhow, uh, so uh, strong Tony Scott, uh, directed film. We like Tony Scott. We miss him greatly. Um, after we have, uh, after we move on from, um, uh, uh our uh, Walken and Hopper tribute scene. Mm -hmm. We end up uh, hooking up with uh, Michael Rappaport. Can't believe he's in here. He, I don't think that guy ages. He, and he looks like a little puppy. I mean, he looks so young. Still, <laughs> so, he still looks young. Yeah, he does. He's one of those people who just doesn't age. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, and he is living uh, with. Uh, he's living with Brad Pitt, Floyd. Yeah. plays an awesome stoner. Which is interesting. Tarantino has said that th that character of Floyd is the one character in the script that he felt he didn't flesh out very well. He said that was, <laughs> of all the characters, mostly just a sketch. And he said Brad Pitt brought so much to that character, Floyd, that it's, I mean, it's next to the Sicilian scene... That is one of people's most favorite things in this film. It's it's he's so funny, and it's just every time he's on screen. I, I can't tell you how many times my wife and I end up saying to each other, "Don't condescend to me, man." 
<laughs> I just need to get some milk and some cleaning supplies. That's ours. Get some cleaning supplies. <laughs> he is really great. He's totally memorable. And I had forgotten how memorable he was. How ironic is that? Oh, he's great. Uh, it is he just fantastic. And um, and so through this... Uh, you know, this convoluted connection of actors, we end up meeting um, through Michael Rappaport. We end up meeting Bronson Pinchot's uh, Elliot Blitzer, uh, who is a connection to uh, Saul Rubinek's Lee Donowitz, mm-hmm. uh, the big named producer. And uh, they're going to exchange all these drugs. Uh, they're going to, he's going to sell all these drugs to Lee and, uh, and, and uh, then they're going to walk away and move to Cancun. Uh, Clar- yep. Clarence in Alabama. So uh, then this becomes the the film about the drug exchange. So we have now the police who catch Bronson Pinchot in a fantastic, uh, <laughs> fantastic <laughs> uh, a traffic stop uh, yep. where he gets the drugs all over his face. And, and now he has to wear a wire in this, uh, in this drug bust. Uh, we have the mob who uh, finds out from Floyd where they're, where uh, Clarence and Alabama are going to be, and we have uh, so the police, the mob, and Clarence and Alabama with the movie people, and so well, and and let's not forget that uh, the movie people have their own set of well armed bodyguards. They do, and we should yes. talk about the thugs uh, on all part uh, all points. The the thugs uh, for the mob um, are. Uh, also legendary, uh, the great James Gandolfini uh, and yeah. uh, uh, John Just Favreau. The- um, uh, but Gandolfini's uh, uh, fight with Patricia Arquette is stirring. It's, yeah, it's horrifying. It's it's really, yeah, it's really violent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, James Gandolfini, I, I guess a lot of the actors in this film ver- were very, very method. Patricia Arquette was like in character the whole time. James Gandolfini was so in character in this film that he wanted, when they were fighting, he actually wanted her to drive the corkscrew in <laughs> his foot because he wanted to feel it for his motivation. <laughs> and she refused <laughs> smartly because that's like an idiot. Uh, I think, I think one of the, one of the crew members actually took like a compass and stuck it in his foot. And that gave him this motivation. There was a lot of violence in this, just in the making of this film, because Patricia Arquette had a hard time sometimes finding the emotional levels she needed to go to. And she actually asked Tony Scott to slap her a few times. And he said, he said his, his fist or his hand became known as the persuader. So when she was <laughs> struggling, getting, getting to that emotional level, she'd, she'd ask Tony to bring out the persuader. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. I know. I know. It takes it to another level. What a great set. Just ah, loving I tell you. <laughs> caring. Lots, of <laughs> Lots of medical bills. That, uh, that sequence, uh, they, they both of these characters take some knocks, and um, uh, in the end, she ends up, uh, I, you know, insofar as his performance was great and horrifying. I mean, he is he's horrifying when he is he's looking at her and saying, you know, go ahead take a shot because I like you, you know, she's threatening to threatening him with a corkscrew just before she drives it into his foot. Yeah. He's taking his shirt off and he's saying, go ahead, give me a shot. Like bearing his chest to her. And, and, um, 
once she gets the upper hand, you end up seeing, I, I think, an even more horrifying side of her as she assassinates him, uh, really, uh, brutally. Yeah, she, animalistic. Yeah, uh, it really is. And and uh, I think she's, you just, that the rage that she channeled, uh, you know, in that, that sequence was fantastic. You know, it's it's interesting. That sequence was one that the uh, uh, the uh, MPAA really had a uh, a struggle with when they were determining the rating for this film, and they wanted them to cut it back before they released it. And it wasn't so much the violence on Gandolfini's part as it was the animalistic craziness that uh, Patricia Arquette goes into when she starts attacking him. They basically said, you know, she turns into too much of an animal. We need you to cut some of that out. It's crazy. It's like she's the hero. She's defending herself. It's not him beating her. It's it's her <laughs> defending herself, right. trying to survive that they were, you know, offended with. It's strange. Uh. Well, so that's uh, that's Gandolfini's, uh, uh, you know, he's uh, that's Gandolfini's role here. And on the uh, the uh, film, the producer's side, we have some other thugs, but the only <laughs> only one that I know, and unfortunately, maybe unfortunately, that I know well, is Eric Allen Kramer. Do you know why I know Eric I, Allen? Kramer? I want to know why you know that. Because I have children. And my children love Good Luck Charlie. Oh. And Eric Allen Kramer plays the dad oh. on Good Luck Charlie. Which How is funny. nothing like his uh, <laughs> character in this movie. That uh, is I hilarious. Need, I need an ambulance. Somebody <laughs> call me an ambulance. Fantastic. <laughs> Just before he is, he is um, uh, shot by Chris Penn. Uh, Chris Penn and uh, Tom Sizemore. Uh, oh, yeah. Very uh, happy cops. Very happy. They are really the giddiest cops I think I've ever seen. They're so excited <laughs> to make this really bus. Really excited about this bus. Like they've never made a bus before. Tom Sizemore um, uh, is uh, vastly better in this film than he was in Strange Days. <laughs> Well, this film is vastly better than Strange Days, so I don't know if that's a fair... Well, I just want to keep the marker out there. I just want to know that the marker yeah. is there. That's right. Uh, the bar was set low, and he, he outperformed his other role there. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so then we have... the. And this is the part where I get... Uh, did you want to talk about any more thugs? No, you know, I, I there's there's so many. I mean, yeah. you, you see uh, um, Kevin Corrigan popping up as one of the, the right. mobsters. Right. <laughs> You see Michael Beach popping up as one of the cops. I mean, there's lots of great faces that you see uh, all through there. It's uh, it's great seeing all these people in you know this great Mexican standoff. Oh, yeah. oh you yeah. know, and we didn't we didn't talk about Samuel Jackson's very brief performance. Yeah, very brief, uh, but yeah, memorable yeah, but, uh, performance. Also memorable, yeah. Yes. Uh, okay, so then we have the great uh, standoff at the end, and this is where. <laughs> This is where I'm watching this with my wife, and you know, we always, whenever we see a gun, uh, kind of in a movie, you know, we go to the often misattributed line from uh, Hitchcock. You know, if you if you place a gun on the mantle, it better go in Act One. It better go off in Act Three. Right. Well, uh, so then <laughs> there we see the mob and the police and everybody prepping for this standoff with their. 10,000 guns on a bed. 
it's and a we, lot it's a lot of artillery there's a lot of guns and uh and and they all go off they all go off at once and this was the only thing in this film frankly that felt uh it, I, the whole time i'm thinking this movie really stands the test of time it's like not dated at all it feels like this fairy tale really holds up and then they get to this standoff at the end and there's just it that's the part that starts to reek a little bit of beverly hills cop to me well it, just a, it it's does, just the but... tone and the feel it's just kind of plastic and but it's it's the standoff that yeah. that feels Tarantino though. It's 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 these three groups of people all holding weapons, pointing at each other. It feels very Tarantino, which of course you know he is pulling that whole Mexican standoff idea from so many other films that came right. before that he's such a fan of because you know he is he is a a, a cineast. He loves movies. He loves stealing from movies and making them his own and and he very much loves this whole idea of yeah. of creating the the kerfuffle of crossfire and it just it's it's a legendary trope in action films gunslinging films quite a kerfuffle uh you can quote me on that <laughs> uh and in the process uh we lose uh, a lot of people yeah you know according to our our favorite uh weapons site the internet movie firearms database there is at least 13 different models of weapons used in this film <laughs> yeah that's um... <laughs> i'm glad to know that would you like to highlight any specific models handy well we've got the uh, ithaca 37 stakeout that's the one that uh, drexel uses to kill the uh, the drug dealers he stole from of course, uh, Clarence, at the beginning of the film, to kill Drexel, uses his uh, little Smith, Smith & Wesson Model 66. And, uh, you know, there's such a variety of film of guns all the way through. The Remington 870 sawed off that uh, James right. Gandolfini it's is carrying. Sort and of a then celebrity weapon. It is also all over the bed that, uh, that all of the people, the mobsters, are packing. Right. Uh, right. You know, more Smith & Wessons uh, that... Uh, that uh, they have the Desert Eagle is one of them that one of the mobsters has. It's yeah, you've got, and then of course uh, you've got some uh, some Heckler and Koch MP5K <laughs> submachine gun during the final shootout. The Uzi, yeah, it's uh, yeah, your buddy, your your kid's favorite dad is brandishing his Uzi when he's when he's mowing people down. That really was a weapon of the '90s, wasn't it? The Uzi. Yeah, it was. It's good. <laughs> Good stuff. So yeah, it's uh, we'll we'll post this on on our oh yeah we gotta our, post the link. our show notes so you can all look at all these wonderful weapons used in the film. <laughs> uh, and then uh, and then uh, we we get um, uh, Clarence gets shot in the eye. Yeah, Is that kind, right? I mean, really, yeah. sort of shot like kind of above the eye, right? That's the hole in his head. There was a bullet in there, right? Yeah, that's yeah above the eye enough to make him blind, I guess, in one eye. I guess that's what happened. That's kind of my sense of it. It yeah. it feels like a pretty big hole. Yeah. When you're looking at it. It looks like uh yeah, at least there's something there, yeah. It's so. a hole that looks like it's a hole that could kill a guy. Yeah. And maybe I would be less uh you know, uh, I, this is this is an interesting perspective that I had and this is pretty dark. Uh so I'm gonna, I'm going to go a little bit dark. I would have a different sense of the believability of this film, and maybe I did have a different sense of the believability of, of his reawakening mm-hmm. before Gabby Giffords. Mm. Right? Ooh. Yeah, that is kind of a gloomy dose of reality brought into this film. Uh-huh. 
Uh huh. And I Ugh. can't help not thinking about that. Talk about cinema perspective. Yeah. Uh, what that uh, you know two miraculous recoveries there. Yeah. So yeah. I, I uh, you know I like like I was saying I it's, it's, I only don't like it uh, not because it's not believable, but anymore at least, but certainly because I just wanted that Tarantino twist. Right. So right. he lives and they go off and they do their thing in Cancun on the yeah, beach. With the little baby Elvis. Everybody's happy. Yeah. That was a true romance after all. It, it turns out it was. Who else do we need to be uh, attributing uh, this film? We talked about Hans Zimmer. Uh, yeah, his, his his stolen music is great in this film. But uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful tune for it. Um, I think the cin- cinematography, uh, Jeffrey L. Kimball does a great job with it. Um, he's kind of a, you know, done a number of films with Tony Scott, uh, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Revenge, True Romance. Uh, I think that was all he did with him. So, a, you know, a, a good run with him for a little while. And he's just, you know, he has a good vibe and he's been going all the way up to uh, – the Expendables, and uh, you know, currently working on Big Thunder, a TV movie in a doll's house. So you know he, he's he's a, a a DP who has a flashy eye, and I think for Tony Scott's needs of having lots of bright colors, moving camera, very alive sort of storytelling, I think that uh, Kimball really, you know, I think he did a, a very effective job for him. Well, I, you know, I think he did. Um... Uh, he did some interesting, he does some really interesting things with palettes, you know. I mean, he did, yeah. um, you know, this was, uh, I, I, he did a bunch of stuff with John Woo. Maybe not a bunch of stuff. I know he did Mission Impossible 2. Right. And uh, Wind Talkers, was that the other one? Yes. Uh, but, but he also ended up doing, like, you you look at the collection of films that he has done. Yeah, here they are. Okay, so you look at the collection of films that he's done sort of in the, the early 2000s, and you have these, these really interesting palettes from like Star Trek Nemesis. They they mm-hmm. went with this like green right. everywhere. And apart from the green blood of the Vulcan, it wasn't really ever a, a, a major sort of hue for the series. And, and it ends up doing, uh, making kind of a really interesting choice um, for that film. Uh, you know, Stigmata, uh, another Patricia Arquette, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, was I, I was a big fan of that film. I wonder yeah. if I would still like that. Uh, yeah, it was just a, a really interesting sort of vision of kind of hell, uh, right? But I just really like the stuff that he's done generally. And ironic that I would lampoon uh, this movie with a Beverly Hills Cop reference when, in fact, he was a DP for Beverly Hills Cop Two. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It was directed by Tony Scott. Right. So there you Hello, go. Everyone. Welcome to Good Money. Oh my goodness! What did you do there? We're gonna. I don't know. We're talking good money. Make that stop. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> Something opened on my computer. Uh, I love so, it when that happens. You know, uh, I, I would also like to add that um, there, you're doing it again. Oh, yeah. I can't find it. Yeah, I forgot what I was going to say. All right. It was something about Bronson Pinchot and Jurgen Pronchno. Jurgen Prochnow? Yeah. He's not in this. No, no, he's not. But you don't want to confuse the two. Ha- have you ever he'll, confused? Or the he'll two? give you dust boot. 
<laughs> oh my god. Uh, what? What? Uh, right? Wow. <laughs> That's possibly one of the worst jokes I've ever heard. No, it's not. You've totally heard worse jokes. I probably have. I right. probably have, yeah. What else do we need to talk about this movie? This movie, um, along with a couple others that came out around the time, spurred quite a vitriolic attack by Senator Bob Dole, uh, attacking Hollywood's values and their products when he was uh, campaigning for president. It was, uh, you know, he really dug into the industry, in particular singling out Natural Born Killers and True Romance. Um, oddly enough, both films written by Quentin Tarantino. And uh, he, he had a, a serious problem with how this industry was, uh, you know, creating this violent world that, uh, you know, we were essentially, according to him, we were all becoming and we were turning into, you know, violent people because of it. It really, his, his comments really created a backlash in Hollywood against him. And, you know, I don't know how much it hurt his, I mean, he obviously didn't become president, but I, I don't, I can't remember at the time how much it actually hurt him as far as when all of the people in Hollywood, the producers and actors and everyone came out kind of saying, yeah, you know, when times are tough and when there's a lot of violence in society, you blame the playwrights, you blame the, blame the people who are, you know, capturing the essence of what's going on and translating it into an art that, that everybody is watching. And uh, I don't know. I, I am curious if... It seems like we have gone down a road, then Bob Dole was right, or if it really is something where, you know, he's just, a, you know, this, it's, I guess it's a, this, this age old question is, is cinema and art really just a reflection of the times, or is it also leading to, uh, or, and, and kind of desensitizing us from the times and, and kind of perpetuating it? And in a way, I think it goes uh, almost hand in hand with that whole philosophy of Tarantino and this world of Tarantino that he has created with all these parallel realities and all this sort of stuff with this is his, according to, you know, whoever it was that we talked about before, I think, I, I believe it's cracked.com that had that story or some, somebody had a story about right. how Tarantino, all of his films tie together and in Inglorious Bastards, because these these uh, people kill Adolf Hitler in this violent bloodbath uh, and burn the theater down, basically, um, in a movie theater, it basically everybody in that world now this parallel reality grows up very attached to uh, uh, just pop fiction, pop culture, and. Uh, very desensitized to violence. And it's interesting looking at Tarantino's work, and it's interesting that Bob Dole singled those two out, how violent they are and how violent, you know, really does, violence does go through all of his scripts in a very strong way. Um, I don't know. I just find it very interesting that that's part of this, you know, this whole parallel reality theory about Tarantino and his work. There is a. Uh, did you see the uh, Maxim article on the the fifteen year anniversary? Uh, no panel. I didn't. There is a uh -huh. wonderful uh, piece that I will post in the 
in the show notes, um, uh, True Romance, 15 years later, where they get all the actors together in Tarantino and they, they sit down and talk about kind of the impact the film has had. It's a great long conversation. And they do mention uh, Bob Dole saying that the film was disgusting. Arquette says uh, senators talked about True Romance because they were advocating more censorship. Bob Dole said our movie was disgusting, or maybe he said that I was disgusting. Uh, and Tarantino says, I knew that Dole had not seen True Romance or Natural Born Killers. I just couldn't believe a guy running for president of the United States, Land of the Free and Home of the Brave, was condemning art he hadn't seen. You effing a-hole. You'd say anything <laughs> to get elected. Um, so I think they're buds. I think so. He was probably bitter about losing a poker. Yeah, losing a poker game. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a fascinating statement, but I think the end of the, um, the end of this interview actually has a, an interesting line from Tarantino that, that I think is, is important to your point and to the role that this film has in his, the development of his catalog. Mm-hmm. People have told me they put the you're so cool line in their wedding vows. I even met a couple with matching you're so cool tattoos. True Romance and Reservoir, Do- Reservoir Dogs were the growing pains for Pulp Fiction's success. Audiences were seeing something they hadn't seen before, comedy and violence switching on a dime. They'd be horrified one second and laughing the next. And I hadn't really thought about it in that context, that, um, uh, you know, that in, in many respects those these movies were teaching us how to... Uh, whether it's teaching us uh, sort of how to approach violence in a new way, a new maybe more accessible way, uh, or or desensitizing us. I mean, frankly, that's uh, there's some of that. But mm-hmm. um, either way, we were learning something in the '90s with with these movies that um, that hasn't it clearly hasn't abated. Yeah, um, and. Uh, I, I think this movie uh, plays a, a pretty clear role. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's a a very interesting step in our culture and, and in filmmaking and looking at it now. And I don't know what version you you have and what you watched, but I watched the unrated director's cut. Yep. It's I in today's uh, society by today's standards. It doesn't seem that outlandish to watch this film. I, it's it's a little surprising that stuff was cut. Um, maybe that was just something back in you know twenty years ago when the film came out that it was you know just a little different times. Um, and maybe we have desensitized a little bit to it now. So then when you watch this, you're like, oh okay, yeah, it's nothing new. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I I don't feel like I myself have grown more violent uh, or or horrified by real violence because I've watched this movie. Yeah, I no, I I agree with you. Yeah. Mm. So Good take film. that, Bob Dole. It did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ringtone. <laughs> um, uh, it did not do well. This film did not do well. Did not at all. Uh, it has since grown and become quite popular in that kind of cult status where I, virtually everybody you know probably has seen it now. Um, but boy, at the time, I mean, uh, Tony Scott said that it, he had a budget of $13.5 to make the film. I haven't seen anything about prints and advertising. I don't know how much more went into it. But 13.5 was the budget. Domestically, it only made about... A, 
12.3 million. So this film lost money. This was one of our losers on our list. Like I said, it's grown in cult status. It's been re-released in theaters around the world time and time again. It's done very well on DVD, Blu-ray, and it's probably by now made a lot of money. But in its initial theatrical run, it is a loser. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't. I I want to just give a quick shout out to back to Lee Donowitz. Uh, oh yeah, Saul, Saul Rubinek, who yep. is one of the most interesting actors I think I can think of to watch. Like he's just got a really interesting face. Yeah. Uh, are you yeah. uh, are you aware I've, are you a Warehouse Thirteen fan? Uh, I'm not a Warehouse okay. Thirteen fan. So I don't know what that is. What? Ah. Uh, well, they're Sorry. just uh, Warehouse Thirteen is another fantastic uh, guilty pleasure sci-fi show, gotcha. and uh, it's been on for it's it just wrapped its fourth season. And he plays he's a principal character in this um, in this f- series. And they just uh, at least following Twitter, they're just wrapping uh, a, an, a shooting for an abbreviated season five as the show has been canceled. And so it's very very sad. Uh, to see this show go, it's one of those shows that you just kind of you 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 become friends with the people in the show. And Saul Rubinek is, you know, he's my bud. He's Artie. There you go. Uh, so, and another little interesting tidbit. Speaking of the Tarantino universe, yeah, his character is the son uh, of Donnie the Bear Jew Donowitz in Inglorious Bastards. Yes. Yeah, so, so I like these universe th- mashups. Yeah, so, I really so, like this theory. I mean, it, it really it's, it's it's interesting that this yeah. man who who creates these, uh, you know, this big Hollywood producer who creates these Vietnam films. His father was one of the people who killed Hitler. <laughs> killed Hitler, right? <laughs> and Alabama apparently had been a former partner of Mr. White, uh, Harvey Keitel's character in Reservoir Dogs. I need to go pull out Reservoir Dogs again. I feel like there's a there that's a linchpin. It is. It is. So what a great film. Let's rank it. Let's do it. And where can they find us? Oh, well, if you head to Flickchart <laughs> prompt. <laughs> uh, if you head to flickchart.com slash the next reel, you will find our top films. And uh, you know, you don't even have to remember that. Just go to the next reel.com, click on the the big button right in the sidebar there, it says, hey, go check out the golden list. And you'll head Absolutely. straight to our user account. All right, you ready? Here we go. True Romance or Moon? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, those are not similar. Not at all. And kind of hard to compare. I know. I'm going to go True I, Romance. I am, too. Uh, the characters in True Romance. There's so many characters. There are so, so many, many characters. characters. They yeah. only win on volume. That's right. Wow. This is a tough one for me. True Romance or The Social Network? I'm going to have to go Social Network yeah, on this one. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, oh, True Romance or The Town? True Romance. Hmm. Man, I'm really torn on that one. The Town is such a great heist film. I'll say True Romance because of the characters, but mm-hmm. I think I like The Town better. True Romance or The Natural? Oh. I'm going to do True Romance. Yeah, but 
man tears, Andy. I know. Uh, think of all those characters. All right, true romance. All right. Crazy. I know. True romance or marathon man? True romance. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. True, we, I am surprised that marathon man is higher than the natural, though. Uh, true romance or zero dark 30. Oof. I, I'm going to have to go zero dark 30. Why? The characters, Andy, the characters. Uh, oh, man. Zero dark 30 is just cinematic brilliance. <laughs> if you say it's because it's so zero dark 30 ish, <laughs> I'm going to call you on that one. Because it's zero dark brilliant. Oh, that's right. All right. Uh, I'll do true romance. All right. That's better. <laughs> and uh, there you have it. 26. It. 26. Out of 98. Oh, 98. We're so close. I know. We're getting there. All right. Hey, nice one. Where do we go from here? What are we doing next week? We don't even know what we're doing next week. That's right. We're kind we're of a toss just... up. We're so uh, still getting back into the flow of things that we're not sure. Right. But so it's going to be a great one. It is going to be a great one because all of our options are great. Couples on the Run continues next week. Absolutely. All right. I'm done with you. This has been way too long. This has been a crazy long show. We should, as a couple, we should go on the run. You just took it to the awkward place. <laughs> it was, we were doing fine. No, like, like a midnight no. run sort of run. Mm, no. Not a true romance nope. sort of run. Nope. No, it was, was it too late. No, it was fine. And then you just it. I, I did. I did that, didn't I? Now there's explaining. Now <laughs> I have to. There's going to be explaining to do. Ugh. Uh, leave it to me. Leave it to me to ruin the ending. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022. We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>